Hi, everyone. It's Erica. I wanted to start by saying thank you to everyone who came out this summer for our This Is Home fundraiser event. It was a really great evening of friends, food, stories, and a gorgeous sunset. And we were able to meet our goal because of your generous support, so thank you. A special shout-out to our VIP ticket holders, Joseph Lindstrom, John Lindstrom, Mark Gaffin, Lori Liu, Dana Horgan, Joanne Wilson, Scott Hebert, and Ted Hebert. Thank you guys a million for your support. If you weren't able to be with us in Los Angeles, it's not too late to give us a tax-deductible donation on our website. We really do rely 100% on support from our listeners to fund the podcast. So if you like what you've heard this season, please consider making a donation in any amount. And thanks. You're listening to This Is Home. This is home. This is home. We're going to be allowed to cry. We were lost. There was a few weeks where we didn't know where we would live. What does home mean to you? What does home mean to me? How's my jerk answer? A hammock? Your apartment in Los Feliz. <laughs> water. Let's go. Oh, and at water. Sorry. Home means safety. Home means comfort. To me, the thing, the whole drive of life is in many ways is to get back home. Frank Coyote and Rachel Romanski had a specific plan for their family. They had discussed it at length before they decided to get married nine years ago. Today, they live in Los Angeles. Frank is an actor. You may have seen his work on the series Mad TV. And Rachel works in nonprofit development, where she spends time working with foster youth who are experiencing homelessness. They are the parents to one biological child and one adopted child. We wanted to use their story as an example of a couple finding a great deal of value in the way that the system guided them through the process of adopting their son, something that, before Rachel, wasn't really on Frank's radar. I'm naturally cautious, like emotionally cautious, everything, any sort of cautious uh, I can be, I am. So I think that that kind of stuff was a little scary because I knew nothing about it. So that concept was introduced by Rachel more so, and then kind of reinforced through a job that she had here in Los Angeles. And so we became closer and closer to it. But I, I don't know if we ever necessarily discussed like, let's try, do we say try yeah, for a biological did. first mm-hmm. and then see how that goes. Mm-hmm. And so we were lucky to have a daughter. And, and then after that, we're like, okay, let's look at this next step and waiting until she gets to an appropriate age where we feel like there's enough space or whatever, like we feel good about what's going on here mm-hmm. um, with the one. And so we knew that and it kind of it Meaning came to Meaning she's walking and talking and yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. Was, yeah. I, I can't remember when we started the process, she was... Around two. Two and a half, half. or something. Yeah. Which, knowing it would take some time and that kind of thing. But Well, yeah. yeah, it was always a part of the plan, for sure. Definitely. But I, I have to applaud Rachel for bringing it into my life because I probably wouldn't have done it and also it it i'm just because i'm scared it's 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 totally a place of fear so but i'm also now looking back on it it is the most rewarding thing i've ever done so i'm thankful i think that's good to have a partner like that that's going to make you do something that is a little bit uncomfortable not in your comfort zone and then to do something because we're so fortunate and i'm so happy we did and what what were some of those fears that you had if you don't mind sharing I think the normal fears that anybody would have, especially we, um, to go back, Rachel worked at a nonprofit in Hollywood that worked with a lot of former foster youth 
and homeless uh, youth, and you can talk more about that. But um, it became important to us to to try to uh, adopt from the county, which has its own process, and there's a lot of uncertainty in that. So there's a little more certainty in private adoption. And so that uncertainty kind of scared me and all of those things that you just don't know. It was more fear of the unknown. As soon as you start to study it and become trained in a certified foster parent, it makes more sense. But you just kind of, whatever you've heard or the stigmas attached to these sort of things. My, I mean, my exposure to it was probably different strokes. Like <laughs> at that point, right, my, my, right. my exposure to adoption was different strokes, which I loved when I was a kid and which watched in syndication. Constantly. I'll just say um, to any uh, people who are involved in making television, I think that's that's a kind of representation that actually mattered to me as a kid growing up, like watching different strokes, as funny as it may sound. Uh, that's a family that it that is kind of like mine, even though you know my dad was no Mr. Drummond, you know, or whatever his name was. Mr. Drummond, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Yeah. But, Mr. D, Mr. D. Uh, <laughs> but but that there was adoption in that family mattered so much to me, and I know people talk all the time about how representation matters in um, in media. That was that was. Um, that was a great example for me. Well, what's funny is how progressive it was, right? If yeah. you think about it, it was just a dad mm-hmm. with two African American boys, and a, a, that was his daughter was his biological daughter. That's I, right, Kimberly. I have, I have no yeah. idea where the mom was. I don't remember. She, I do. She died. She did. Yeah, I did not that's know a that. Sad story. Mrs. Garrett, the housekeeper. She housekeeper. had to be the like feminine stand-in though. Went into right. facts of life though. Yep. Um, and then later he was dating that woman who had the redheaded. Kid. Oh, yeah. Mr. D. Mr. D. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so sorry. You were saying your exposure to adoption was... But I'm, I'm being a little bit flippant about it, but I think that probably was the extent of it, to be completely honest. And like some television, like you, as a kid, you just... It wasn't the kind of thing that we talked about growing up. We didn't have any exposure. I didn't have any exposure, like direct, like family friend or anybody in the family that that happened. So it was literally learning from television to a certain extent. And then you see it, you know, it's in the news because of celebrities and stuff, and that happens frequently, so you kind of see that. But then when you get into the process, I do think that that is something that is, like, undeniably compelling to people when you talk to people about what we did, is they want to know about the process. It's just, like, more and more questions. Most people aren't like, oh, there's never, there's almost always a follow-up. So what, what was the process? Oh, man. Well, the process is, you know, you pick an organization to work through, either the department or a private agency. This is if you're doing foster to adopt, uh, which was important to me to do. Why was that important to you specifically? Well, there's, you know, going back to the work that I had done in Hollywood, I worked with emancipated foster youth who were homeless. So there's these young people who didn't have the permanent connections or um, and the tools and and often the education because they were moved around so much. They had so many different placements. And when they would have a new placement, then they would get disrupted in their school. Um, and and I know there were studies that said that, you know, when a, when a child moves to a new school um, through a new foster care placement, then they get behind like six months in curriculum. So there's all these like problems compounding on these poor kids who just needed an intervention in the first place. And the, and the system is designed to protect them. Um, and, and yet the, the real result sometimes, 
and maybe I'll even say often, is that, you know, the kids don't really have the tools they need to survive. So so there's a very, very high rate of homelessness among newly uh, emancipated foster youth. But the point is, there's these young people who the system did not serve in the way that it's set up to, you know, despite the best intentions. I'll, I'll give everybody, you know, credit. I'll assume the best intentions on everyone's part. And yet, these kids did not get the permanency that they deserve and the protection and love that, that they need to thrive. And that's unacceptable to me. And when I when I hear about the numbers of kids, I, I just looked it up, I double-checked my facts before I came here today, there's 400,000 kids in foster care in the United States. 400,000. And that's not acceptable for these kids to be in homes where they don't feel valued and they, they can't see a future. And so um, while there are many other great ways to build family, for me, um, a part of what I wanted to do in addition to building my family was to, to make whatever impact I could on that very huge problem that I see. Because of Rachel's work experience and her knowledge of the foster care system, they were committed to going through a domestic foster care channel on their path towards adopting their son. The first thing they did was attend a county orientation and from there decided to get involved with an agency. So we worked with an agency that was called SCAFA. Now it's called Extraordinary Families. SCAFA was an acronym for Southern California Foster Family something. An adoption agency. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Never really figured that out. Uh, It's a really long acronym. And so we went and took classes there. Uh, to get our certification. And that was incredible. It was really, it was, I think it was fun. Uh, It was scary. And we talked about a lot, but uh, we used to go down there uh, and take these classes at night. And it was, it was good for us to get a time to connect and learn this stuff and be exposed to a lot of stuff that we didn't know. And that was, it was also inspiring to be in a room full of people that wanted to do the same thing. And we also felt like in many ways, like the least interesting people, because we're like, white heterosexual folks and this room was filled with like it was really, a really beautiful diverse yeah group diverse of people. yeah you know uh, single some single people some couples uh you know some gay couples it was just so cool to be around all of these people that wanted to do the same thing and hearing people's stories and motivation as to why they were an inspiration it was really inspiring yeah um, and we keep in touch with several of the people from our classes and almost many of them have placements and we right. see their little ones and stuff which is great uh, and go to birthday parties and send cards and all that kind of stuff. But it was a series of classes that kind of prepare you for the process. And it makes it very clear. I think one thing that uh, that information helped me understand, because I, as I said, I was like, fear of the unknown is having information and still recognizing that there's a fair amount of uncertainty. But they they make it very clear that the process for the county is to reunify, is to fostering is an opportunity for the parent to have some time to get to finish the things that they need to do to get the child back as the the easiest way i think to explain it is there's a presumption of this child is going to go back mm-hmm. so we're temporary but if all of those opportunities are exhausted then we will look at a more permanent situation so we knew going in that there was some uncertainty um and was then, that surprising for you to learn about how, like, that perspective that, um, you know, of we're going to do everything we can to reunify first? Was, or, or did you have a different expectation? No, 
Not really. I mean, I think it's presented to you like this is how it is. Yeah. I think they're also, they're not weighing like who can provide the better life. It's not that subjective kind of thing. Like we're going to weigh this situation versus this situation. Like there's different criteria. So you understand that a little bit better. And then once it's presented to you, however you have, you feel about it, whether it's fair or unfair, you just go, I accept that this is how it is. And it does make sense to me when they explain it to you. And that I think that it's important. I think mm-hmm. if they can reunify, then they should. And there was a, during our process, there, it was undeniable with our son that we very much wanted to keep him. We loved him so much. And yet he's not a piece of property. Yeah. He's not ours. He's not ours. And so there has to be a situation where they're going to look at every single thing that they can do to reunify until, and then if not, then we're there. Um, and we, that, that was our ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. So you go through all the classes and you eventually get certified do CPR and a couple other things. And then there's a very exhaustive like home study and home inspection. Um, what was that like? Oh, man. It was really good. It was, I, it was just it was, intense. It's just intense. It's a series of, uh, a series of questions. Um, sometimes those meetings were with each of us individually and sometimes they were together. There was the Capri survey that we filled out and mm-hmm. then – and then we would, you know, get brought together to talk about, you know, oh, well, you know, you had difference of opinion here or you, or you recalled this information differently. Let's talk that through. And it was just really, I mean, I thought it was really great opportunity for us to make sure we were on the same page, that we were very, um, it forces you to be very thoughtful and considerate and mindful of the process that you're going into. But also um, introspective on your life and your past. And like, yeah, yeah. It's, they're not looking for perfect people. Nobody, everyone is flawed to a certain extent. So they're looking at like, what are the traumas in your life and how have you dealt with that? Because some of these situations with these children are, they're coming from some level of trauma, whatever it may be. So yeah, they just need to know that you know how to navigate yeah. through life and that you're going to be a good guide. Yeah. And uh, I'll help someone else navigate through life, I think. I didn't feel... Yeah, but it's just I've never... <laughs> and maybe just I've never had that level of depth, you know, with anything. It literally is the most exhaustive look at our life and what we hope to do with children and all of that than any other thing by far, right? Is there anything that's even close? Maybe crossing the border in Canada? I don't, I don't think know. so. no. No, no, nothing. I it's thought like, it was a really cool opportunity for us to um, talk about things in a way that we wouldn't normally talk about and explore them in that way. What were some of the things that that you talked about? Oh, like, I mean, they talk about parenting style. And so keep in mind, I, you know, I said that we talked about so much prior to even getting married. But um, we talk about parenting style. We talk about what triggers you, you know, um, what, what am I forgetting? Um, you know, things, what have you been through and how mm-hmm. did you, how, you know, maybe, uh, what loss have you been through or what trauma have you been through and yeah, how have you navigated through that? Yeah, wasn't there something called the loss chart or something like oh, that? Oh yeah, you do a loss, loss chart. Is it called a loss chart? Something like that where you literally list people, things, whatever, where you have experienced and felt loss and then like how it was significant to you. And what do you, how did, how you, did you heal, heal through it and, or, yeah. or uh, navigate through it? Yeah. And I, it was so many, there's, it was so specific and so many questions and like, what was it between the questionnaire, the interviews and the joint interviews, it had to amount to more than 10 hours. Sure. 
So like it's 10 hours of like people looking at you and your life and your thoughts and all of that stuff. So it's pretty intense. There, there's very rarely that you get that deep. Yeah. Did it make you question your choice at all or did it reinforce the decision? For me, it made it, yeah, more steadfast, I think, is worth it. I mean, I, it, the, the process for this should be that exhaustive. If we're talking about, we're not, we're not talking about something superficial. We're talking about another human life that's going to come into our home that we may have forever. So, yeah, and it's a vulnerable those... human life that's been through at yeah. least one. So trauma. do it. Examine me. You know, do whatever you need to do. I feel, I, I feel like it was necessary. So, it didn't make me question that at all. We had yet to put, you know, a face to this this human being that we were going to potentially get. So it was still just a possibility. Um, if I know what I know now, I would have been even more steadfast. But I think, yeah, I think it, it made it made you kind of double down on your commitment. And there's a lot of questions of commitment. I would be interested to see if there's a fair amount of people that go through the entire training and then go, I'm out. I would hate to. I would hate to discourage anybody from doing it. I wouldn't either. Yeah, um, <laughs> I remember thinking when we were going through this process, like. Our kid might be out there. Like this child may yeah, be this born child already. already exists. This child maybe. exists. And where are they? And what are they doing? And who are they? And what are they experiencing right now? And are they healthy? And I just remember feeling that like um like whatever the opposite of a ghost is, like that that that's that person's out there. And I just remember being really excited about that and really feeling um like, we can't do this fast enough. I just remember feeling like, we cannot do this fast enough. And to the credit of the agency, despite my enthusiasm, they uh, made sure, they, they did everything that they needed to do to make sure that we were ready. <laughs> but they did. But to be fair, our, our, the call to get our son was our first call. Now. So. Yeah. So, like, you get, after you go through the situation and you get certified and you get a little piece of paper that says you're certified and you do all the home study and inspections, then you're ready to go. And then you'll start getting calls from the social worker. And since it's an agency, the county, as I understand it, the county would go to them and the then they would call yeah. us. Mm -hmm. So he was our very first call. And Should, we said yes. <laughs> so, but we didn't say yes without stopping and thinking. Oh, of course. But to yeah. paint the timeline, we started our classes in January. Um, we went, we did our 32 hours of training. We did our home study. We did our, the last thing we did was our home inspection. Uh, we were done with our home inspection on like a Thursday. And the following Tuesday, we were going to go in and sign our paperwork. And um, I think that Friday... We That's got a right. call and they said, you know, um, based on everything we know about you, we thought of you when we got a call about this little boy, here's what we know about him. Are you, um, interested in, um, fostering him and call us back <laughs> as soon as possible. But you have a couple, you know, minutes to talk about it, but, you know, but there is an urgency because, um, you know, there's this little life that, that needs to you know, land on a safe home and they got to keep making calls. So, um, we talked for a few minutes. We came up with some questions. We went back to the social worker with those questions. She got answers. Um, our daughter was asleep <laughs> when we took the call at like two thirty. 
No, maybe she was asleep at like 2. Um, by 2.30, she was up, and we had decided yes. And he was there by 5 o'clock. And the social worker was gone, and it was done, and he was just there with us. Um, his placement was done. Um, so she woke up from a nap, and we said, there's a little baby friend coming, and he'll be here soon. And he was there by 5 o'clock and gone. Did you tell them what age of a child you were looking for? Yes. It's really, um, there's a very thorough list of um, things that you can discuss. Um, So everything from age and um, is ethnicity important to you or not important to you or, you know. Even gender. Gender, age. even um, what particular traumas has this child experienced? Um, you can, can be specific with what level of the, I, I think it was called risk. Like, um, and they talk about like, we wanted to, we were very clear with our agency that we hope to do, a, a, to adopt. So we wanted a longer term situation, but we knew that it's potential that there's reunification. It was very clear. Mm-hmm. And for some people that go through this whole process, they just want to foster which is amazing, and it's it's very important, and that's a necessary thing that people need to do. Um, but that's also a different consideration because then the, those people that they call might be different. Like the agency or the social worker can assess, okay, would this does this have potential for long-term placement? Let me call people that are interested in that. Mm-hmm. So for for us, we were very lucky for our son. We are, were his first placement, and he ended up with us. He never left us. Mm-hmm. For other kids, as Rachel was talking about with ho- her work at Hollywood Arts, there was a lot of kids that didn't have that. And he's very lucky, and so are we. And some of those kids didn't have that luck. So they bounced around or went from one to the next, and that's a real bummer. Um, yeah. So you, you, get to, you get to kind of exert some control. It's none of it. It's very clear to you, in my opinion, that it's, you don't necessarily – you have to kind of surrender control to the process and to the experts that are taking care of it. And there's a lot of things that are just out of your control. You know, if I could interject uh, to anybody who's considering fostering to adopt, I think um, the same can be said as a person who's given birth. The same can be said about pregnancy and birth. Oh, totally. There is yeah. so um, there are so many things that can happen um, with pregnancy and with birth. And sometimes people have a really specific birth plan and they, they aren't willing to deviate from it. And, um, and they have a very, you know, solid idea about, you know, whether they're going to breastfeed and how it's going to go. And, and the truth is with parenting in general, whether you're foster parenting or whether you're, whether you're, um, you know, however you're parenting, there's only so much that you are in control of. And, and there's other variables at play. In our case, there there was our role as foster parents and our duty to support the reunification. That was our job. Um, but also there's, you know, he's a human being with his own needs, desires, and, and ways of doing things just as our daughter is. And so I'm not in charge of them as much as I might like to be. <laughs> Nobody is. I, I think uh, it's just that's I just life. like to. I just I just like to do my best. Yeah, that, I sure. think that's life. I think that that's what I think is nice about it. 
ultimately is you're nobody knows what is in store for them what the future holds so i think mm-hmm. that that's part of it and i think as a parent you have to learn to be flexible yeah. <laughs> in many ways i think r- structure is important for children like and we try to maintain structure but there's also a level of flexibility as a parent that you really have to exhibit mm-hmm. and so i think that there's those sorts of things that you can have expectations and desires but you also that's what makes it so emotionally complex is you have this level of I want this thing, but it's not about me. And I think, I feel like the training makes it very clear to you that it isn't about us. Yeah. Like, I think this is an interesting thing that I always found is at the, in the legal proceedings, DCFS has an attorney, the biological parents or parent have an attorney and the child have an attorney. The adoptive or foster parents do not. We're there to serve a role. We're, they're there. So we're, we're not, to serve our role. legal interest in a certain way isn't even. Mm. It's not important. Know. Yeah. It's not and important. So, and I actually heard a department investigator, uh, not in our case, but in another case, say one time, you know, we understand that sometimes adults' feelings are going to get hurt. We understand that. But our priority is making sure that the children are protected. And so. Um, totally. So that's a that's a tough thing, I think, for people who haven't been through the process to understand and appreciate sometimes. But the truth is, um, it's a disservice to the child to treat them anything like anything other than a member of a family who may who may need some support. And and maybe their their biological family isn't able to care for them permanently. But um, those decisions can't be made lightly or quickly. Um, it has lifelong impact. Talking about your son and the day that you got your son, mm-hmm. um, what were you told about your son and about your son's biological mom? We said that we were open to um, all races. Um, it, it didn't matter to us. We were open um, to a child, I think we said under a year old. So I think, yeah, the information we got was his age, his gender, his race, and, and then, a little bit of information about his mom. Yeah, and, and what like, her circumstances were. And it was her, not which, much. Yeah. It was not a ton of information. There was no, there wasn't pictures. But there was enough that we were able to ask some follow-up questions mm-hmm. based on what they told us about what was going on with her. Then we could go back and say... You mean like this or like this or what does that look like or you know what are help us point us to some studies about um, how that has impacted children long term or, or whether it has and and we we you know we're able to do some quick research and um, they did it was like almost like magic the the matching right oh yeah and I think but one thing we were talking about this on the way down is like it's very important for us to not. I think there's a perception or it's easy to vilify a biological parent in this situation, like that they did something wrong. And I just think it's so much more complex than that. Yeah. Um, and that these, that this is not bad people, that these aren't horrible decisions and all these sorts of things. Like at the, at the root of it, it's a really, really complex situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the department and all these people involved are looking out ultimately for the child and so it's a difficult thing to raise a kid. It's a lot for a lot of people. And even for two of us, it's, it's a it's, lot it's of a, work. It's a lot of work. And so there's things and situations I think it's important to say, like, she had a set of challenges that were prohibiting her from 
providing the best care possible for him. Mm-hmm. And so we were there uh, and we were so lucky to get him, but it was, it was, it wasn't very much information. You would get more information from a transaction, a, a, from a transaction time. or a dating profile. Yeah. It wasn't like we didn't have a dossier like, and he was, he was only six weeks old when we got yeah. him. So it's, it's, it was not a ton of info. Yeah. And it could have <laughs> like, gone like, any direction. Yeah. The case could have gone any direction. And, and I do think it's important for anybody who's considering, um, fostering to adopt, not only to think about the responsibility to support that reunification, which can be challenging emotionally um, to keep yourself in that mindset. um, But also, I think it's important, as Frank said, not to vilify that parent. There are some horrendous um, cases that make the news where you think like, just well, that's like, very but, easy. But yeah. but but the, but the not, average not, case is is not that black and white, and it's it's hard for people who've been raised in a cycle to break out of that cycle sometimes. So whether that be domestic violence, whether that be um, just poor parenting skills, whether that be um, whatever types of abuse or, or drug abuse or, or addiction or whatever those whatever those challenges are that are that the mother is dealing with or or the parents are dealing with, they're likely from a cycle somehow. And sometimes they're not, but, but, but sometimes they are. And it's very, it's very difficult to extract yourself from those cycles without a ton of coping skills. And so, so often, so often somebody might feel like they're doing a great job because they're not doing as terrible of a job as the person who raised them. And unfortunately, I, I, what I will say, uh, um, our son's biological mother, I, I think that had had someone intervened for her when she were younger, life would be different for her. But but there is no way will I ever fault her for lack of effort or lack of caring. It's simply lack of tools. And, and all of the things that she experienced were compounded because she didn't, she wasn't protected in the first place as a small child. Mm-hmm. I think that's important for people to think about, you know, if you are an advocate for children because you want to protect children, then I think it's important to check yourself and not fault that parent who was a child who, who um, was experiencing trauma. So. I've I've just I say that so strongly because I've met other people who've been foster parents or or even people you know who haven't who want to right away vilify that parent and say like oh was it this was it that losers terrible humans you know whatever they want to say about that human being when the fact is those parents are human beings they're flawed yes they often don't have the tools and it's very difficult to get those tools under duress so if you've been separated from your child that's that's very devastating no matter who you are and that's a time when you got to dig deep and start to get those parenting skills or start to you know work your your plan whatever that plan is and that's probably about the hardest time to do that um, so I, I just think there's a, a lot of room for compassion for bio parents. Um, but that doesn't mean that I think that kids should continue to stay with bio parents who are not safe. Yeah. This is very complex. Yeah. In our particular case, we, I, I have such great reverence for our bio mom cause she's really gracious and wonderful. And we had, we had biological mom visits and we would often monitor them 
She's most of very, them. very loving. She's super loving. So she's not incapable of like loving this child. It wasn't that at all. Yeah. So he, uh, so that's something that's important to us to impart to him as he gets older when he asks, uh, is to not vilify and to celebrate and say, and let him know how loved he was. And even so loved that like many people wanted this little guy. Yeah. Uh, and so we were the, we were the lucky ones that uh, ended up with him. But, but that the was same never, case. it was just, uh, it's so important that people, I think who are fostering, especially despite what may be going on in, in those um, biological parents' lives, I can guarantee there is never a lack of love. Never. In one case. I can't, no, yeah. I mean, despite even the most horrible cases, there's never a lack of love. It's an incapability to provide or protect, um, to provide or protect. Did you discuss how you wanted or if you wanted the bio mom to be a part of your son's life? I think the training tells us that it's important for the child whenever possible to have a connection whenever possible. And we maybe had different opinions prior to the training and then we both kind of got on the same page of, okay, yeah, this is, this is our goal if it's possible. And the story's not totally written, it's being written. Yeah. But I think for now, we have a situation where we're, we're not in contact and wishing her well from afar. Coming out of the training, I think we, we both agreed that um, whenever possible, we would, we would foster that relationship. Um, however non-traditional uh, that may look, that that was something we were committed to. And I think that um, just like with parenting in general, you got to kind of listen to the circumstances and figure out what's best for the circumstances. So um, I have no set speech in my mind about what we'll say to him because I don't know how old he'll be and I don't know what will be age appropriate at that time. But I will say, you know, for the whole world to hear and for him to hear someday, like he is absolutely loved um, there's not been anybody in his life that uh, didn't love him. Uh, he was very well loved, and um, his biological mother was not able to, despite her very best, very hard efforts, to become ready. And she knew that. And although she would have never willingly said, please take my child and raise my child, she did realistically see what the circumstances were and after the judge told her you are not the mother any longer it's um, called a, a termination of parental rights yeah. it's a big hearing if anybody's going through a foster or adopt situation it's kind of a very big uh, occasion and legal proceeding because that's basically saying that this person's exactly that their rights as a parent have been terminated yeah so how long after your son arrived did that occur? Um, was that in about November? A, a year and yeah, a four, year and four or five, five months. months. Yeah, yeah. So a while. So you had him a while. A while. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and and the you know there were ups, there were downs for the bio mom in terms of her working her plan and and whether it was going in the direction of reunification and and as it headed towards the the termination hearing, I, I think she had a very realistic understanding and she said some things to me about that and about her feelings, you know, her very warm feelings about him. And then after the hearing, um, she asked for permission to approach me 
after she'd just been told this horrible news, uh, and she said, um, I want to thank you for loving him. I said, um, he is safe. And she said, I know. And I think that's really important because um, I think that that was able to happen because we did have a process. And so when people like me are in a process and they want things to hurry up and they want things to go as quickly as possible, it's a process. You're talking yeah. about a life. And um, and these are big decisions. And, um, and nobody, no human is less than another. Um, and we all deserve an equal, um, that's why our judicial system exists, right? Like we all deserve equal representation and we all deserve an opportunity um, to get there if we can. Um, and yet, of course, there had to be reasonable limits on that um, to make sure that the yeah, most vulnerable are protected. You saying that, that makes me think why I, ha I, I have such a visceral reaction to that court is because really nobody, there's no winners. There's and There's no winners. There's no winners there. Can you describe what you were feeling in that moment? Oh, I don't think I can without having an ugly cry. <laughs> um, Just to set, if yeah. you need a moment, I can set the scene for you, okay. if you will. There, it, there's a, it's so procedural. It's a courtroom, you know. So there's people doing their jobs. This is what they do every day. So there's like this. There's these moments and these life decisions that are happening that are almost sometimes muttered, like. Like if you're in the back of the room, there's often when we went to the case, we're like, what are they saying? Like, yeah, it's kind of there's an underplay to these huge situations, like monumental life decisions for people that are affected in a great way. Yeah. So it's not like there's not like the lighting didn't change. There wasn't like a sun peering through. The room. Right. It's a very functional, ugly kind of not ugly, but it's just situation yeah. almost yes. clinical. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There's a sterility to it. Yeah. Yes. And it's so bizarre because. Um, I would, yeah, like you're so stressed. I can't even imagine what it's like for a bio parent, but I, um, like I was so stressed out trying to hear every word and the judge does speak into a microphone, but the attorneys don't and they're, and they're facing, facing the other, you other and you're behind or they're facing the judge and you're behind the attorneys in the back of the, in the back of the room. And, um, and there's these People, I assume lawyers from other cases, because the judge hears so many cases, they're coming and going and they're talking and you can hear them and what they're saying, but you can't hear the judge. And, and you want to say to the attorneys, like, shut up. Like, this is a child's life. Like, this is not, you know, but it's procedure for them. They're just going throughout their day, throughout their day. But um, so so in that backdrop of um, everything is, in, you know, Dist fully distractible. There's this hyper focus that you have as the as um, the foster parent, and I'm sure as a bio parent as well, on every word and el every gesture and every throat clearing that the judge does. What does that mean? And what is he reading right now when he's making that face? And so there's there's all this hyper focus and intensity, and anything could happen. Although you kind of feel like you know where it's going, but you don't. And so um, when she when the bio mom asked to talk to me, um, I felt, I felt, um, unity with her. 
I also was wanting to talk to her, but I didn't know if I would be allowed to because she had to leave out the side door. And I, and, and I think people expect that there's this contentious, potentially violent situation that's going to erupt between a foster parent and a bio parent. Um, and sadly there's probably precedent for that. I don't know, but, but, um, but I just wanted to get to her and give her a hug. And she wanted to get to me and say what she wanted to say. And that was a part of her process and her closure too, I, I assume. And um, so I felt unified with her as, as I had throughout the case, I felt like you're a mom and I'm a mom and, and, um, and you're a woman and I know what it's like to be a woman and I haven't walked in your shoes, but we're very, very close in age. And, um, you know, how old are you? So I just turned 43 and, um, and, um, she was very, very close in age to me. And when I would line up my life next to hers and I would think, okay, well, when I was 12, I was doing this. And when she was 12, she told me she was doing this and like, life is just not fair. This is craziness. Um, so, so to think that, um, that we both wanted that same thing at the same moment to connect. I think it was almost like, like not a handing of the baton, almost like a, um, uh, just a joining. It was just a joining and, um, and an acknowledgement of that joining and, a and well-wishing, just well-wishing. And she was always very careful to, and very thoughtful to acknowledge our daughter too and ask about her and wish mm-hmm. her well too and to validate her relationship with our son and uh, our daughter's relationship and yeah so so it was it was like a joining did the world seem different after you left the courtroom that day yeah yeah it did i felt i felt um that thing that people talk about of like a block being lifted off of my chest. I, I could, I breathed differently. I slept differently. Um, and at the same time, I'd be lying if I didn't say then. I, and then I worried about the bio mom. <laughs> I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, but I, but yeah, in terms of our family, I, um, I didn't feel like, Oh, I want to run out of here. Um, and scream from the top of my lungs, I'm happy because it's, it's a complex, um, situation. I didn't just feel joy, but I certainly joy was a big part of what I felt. What about for you, Frank? What were you feeling after that day? Um, it's something that really, it's, there's so many little like totem poles that you hit along the way that kind of, uh, that are going along. So it was, and this is kind of the biggest, one of the biggest ones, because once that happens, then it goes from a foster case to an adoption case. So then that not accelerates, but the process change because now this, this part of the, the uh, situation is going away and it's becoming this. So it's evolving into this more permanent thing. So it's very exciting. Um, I think there's a level of relief, but also like a little like reflection of like, ah, oh, like, so, um, Rachel telling me about that that day, I was like so touched. Like that's just, in my opinion, just remarkable for both of you. But for someone to had like this incredibly emotional blow to their first thought to say like, let me talk to them because like it almost the easier path would just be just walk away or whatever. Oh yeah, she it totally. Was, it's incredible that that happened, and I'm I, I know how compassionate you are, uh, you being my partner and everything. But like 
I thought that that was just so touching and beautiful. Um, and it was for him. Yeah. And it was for that's him. That's cool too. Yeah. That's... That was, it was like, I mean, that made me feel good, but it was for him. And I just thought, thank you for doing that for him because for, I can say it and it was true and it happened and he needs to know that he was loved and he needs to know that she was thinking about his safety. And thank you for not putting me in a position where I have to deduce that or say, I, I could tell that she felt this way, but that she was explicit about that. Yeah, that's cool. I like that a lot. I think that's very cool. Yeah. Frank and Rachel finalized the adoption of their little boy at the end of April this year, six months after the day in the courtroom that you just heard about. It was a big day, and they celebrated for sure, but they said it was bittersweet, that the whole process is kind of bittersweet, and that everybody has a different experience, too. When they talk to friends from the agency that are going through the same thing, they hear about different challenges and also a lot of similarities. But one thing that was clear to both of them was just how transformative the experience has been. It's kind of immeasurable in many ways. I definitely, I obviously know more about it, like information, the education that I have gained from the training and then the process. So I have some information to impart, but it's kind of immeasurable what it, its effect for me. Like it's been gigantic emotionally. It's so important and uh, probably changes the way we are going to live our life and have uh, in many ways like this this little boy has had a greater effect on me than I have on him. He's just uh, incredible. What advice would you give to prospective parents who were looking to foster or adopt? <sighs> Search your soul. I would say number, think about. The, I want to say something. yeah. Do it. Well, I would say do it too. Just I would do say it. do it. But but do it. Do it. Do it, and have a great agency to support you. Um, getting information can be very difficult. Figuring out the status of your case can be difficult. Making sure you're getting correct information can be difficult. Um, but when you have a great agency that trains you, helps manage your expectations, helps give you the information that you need then do it. Do it. No harm can come of it. No harm can come of it. Find other people who've done it um, and and learn from them. And just, you know, think about your role as, as a protector and a reunifier. Um, and your job is just to support that kid, how, whatever they need. I don't know that I really know the best way. I just know that I had such a positive experience. I want to tell everybody, um, there is such a gigantic need uh, for kids of all ages to be placed in loving homes. And whether those kids are eight years old or whether they're, you know, 16 years old and they're LGBTQ, like there are kids out there who need homes where they'll be loved and accepted. And um, there's no better, what else better could you do with your life? I don't know. Totally. I think... Coming out of this process, all I would say is I would I advocate for anybody that's interested or inclined to do it. And we know people of we know single people, we know people in couples, we know yeah. people who are in couples who aren't married, we know um, people who are older, we know people who are younger, um, and and there's no, it's not the seventies. Like we know, 
we know gay couples that are adopting. We know, you know, single people who are adopting. And um, what's important is are they able to protect and care for their child? To do it, do it, do it. Thank you to Frank and Rachel and to all of our guests on season one of This Is Home. We're taking a break for a few months and then we'll be back with season two with more stories of people who are doing home a bit differently. Do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? Is your family living on the road, living communally, or finding home in unexpected ways? Email us at hello at thisishomepodcast.org. Find us on Twitter at This Is Homecast or on Facebook. We love hearing from you. This Is Home is Erica Gerard and Christina Lindstrom. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego Borda at Harmonix Studios. Music by John Maness. Logo and site design, Lane Carlsness at Broadsheet Design. See you next time. People are just throwing dodgeballs at us, trying to hit us. And then uh, somebody blows a whistle and says, stop. And then we look at each other and laugh and say, that was fun. Let's do it again. That's parenthood. That's exactly what happens that's at our parenthood. house. But that specific that she just described is something the that's children... That's They, they just throw balls like, at right, us. time to... Yeah. And we yeah. say, hey, that was... Oh. Like in you the moment, you're like, oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Inside. Uh, you're like, okay. Um. And then you're like, all right, that was fun. Let's do that again. Yeah.